0: This is an ABC podcast. Hack.
1: (laughs) Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. There are massive issues with access to childcare in Australia. We know that. It's covered a lot in the news. One of the biggest problems, though, is that workers who are eager and passionate about what they do are leaving the industry in huge numbers, and it's because of the pay. It means they'd often be earning more working in a cafe than they do as qualified early childhood educators. It's crazy to think about. In a bit, you're going to hear from young Australians trying to get by as childcare workers. It isn't easy. Also, a teenager in China has become the youngest person in the world diagnosed with Alzheimer's. How common is that? And should young people be thinking more about this condition? First, though, pack.
2: It just made me feel like I wasn't meant to be attending. Disabled and chronically ill people were not welcome.
1: On Triple J. You know, everyone's so happy festivals are back. Getting out with your mates, seeing your favourite artists, feeling free, excited. There's nothing like it. Live music should be for everyone. Unfortunately, though, people are still missing out. Like, imagine forking out all that money but being separated from your mates or you don't feel like you've got a safe place to watch. You just don't know how you're going to get around. If you're living with disability, you know what I'm talking about. Accessibility and inclusivity have been huge issues at events forever. We've seen a lot of changes over the past few years. That's because we're discussing it more. And it's thanks to the work of people like Dylan Alcott. But there are still issues. And rightly, people with disability are calling it out. We've spoken with a couple of people who say they feel frustrated and ripped off after a recent experience at Laneway in Sydney. Shalila Medora has more.
3: Maddie Ruskin had been planning for Sydney's Laneway Festival for months.
2: Laneway was my very first music festival. So needless to say, I was very, very excited to attend.
3: But Maddie knew from the get-go that her music festival experience would be different to most people's.
2: I knew that the only way I would be able to attend Laneway was if I had a chair.
3: Maddie Ruskin has myalgic encephalomyelitis, sometimes known as chronic fatigue syndrome. So she got in touch with Laneway to ask if she could bring a foldable chair with her. And they said, that's not possible.
2: That's when I came to the conclusion that I needed to rent a wheelchair.
3: Maddie did her due diligence. She emailed Laneway and filled out a form on her accessibility requirements. She was told the festival had a range of options in place for people with disability, including an accessible viewing platform.
2: When I arrived at the festival, my friends and I went straight to the smallest, one of the smallest stages called Hope
3: Springs stage. They looked for the accessible platform. There wasn't one. I enjoyed the music. But I didn't see a thing. Maddie was disappointed, but she thought maybe the main stage might be different. I immediately saw that there was what looked like an accessible viewing platform. Maddie was stoked. She would be able to see her beloved Phoebe Bridges. But... I was told that
2: I couldn't go up because there was already two people in wheelchairs
3: using it. Maddie and her friends saw that there was a second platform on the other side of the stage, so they made their way there. But same deal, a limit of two wheelchair users at a time. Keep in mind, there were about 25,000 people at this event. How we in today? Eventually, someone left and Maddie was able to go and use the platform, but her group had to split up. And I was
2: told that it would be impossible to allow more than one friend um, with
3: me. Even when she was up on the platform, Maddie wasn't able to relax and enjoy the music. Maddie kept seeing people with disabilities being turned away, and she said that felt awful.
2: My experience was really tainted by this
3: feeling of guilt. In a statement, Laneway Festival organisers told Hack there wasn't a limit in place at all. They also said security had discretion to allow more than one companion onto the platform. And even though Maddie had correspondence to this effect, it didn't help.
4: We are sorry to hear that a patron was told there was a two wheelchair users limit, as this information is incorrect and wasn't what was briefed to security by our teams.
3: Eventually, nature's call was a bit too loud and Maddie had to use the bathroom. This was easier said than done because the site map didn't have any disabled toilets listed. It was kind of like wherever you could find one, use
2: one. And when I did get to one of the accessible toilets, I was
3: nearly flung out of the wheelchair because there was a raised step. Laneway told Hack that not putting accessible toilets on the map was an administrative oversight, but that all facilities were in line with national standards.
2: It was not how I wanted my festival experience to be and not what Laneway had promised.
3: I love these artists. I was there for Phoebe, for Gone Red, for Joji and for Haim especially. Jane, which is not her real name, is a huge music fan who has autism and ADHD. Like Maddie, she did her due diligence, contacting Laneway ahead of the Sydney Festival to make sure there were provisions in place that would stop her from becoming overstimulated. They said, I can have the accessibility viewing platform. They said... I could bring a friend to accompany me and to have my medication available with me as well. So it felt good, felt good. On the day, Jane was feeling confident and being the planner she is, she printed out her correspondence with Laneway and went straight to check out the accessibility platform. Yeah, showed them the email, showed them everything, explained the situation. And they said, no, this isn't the accessibility area. This is for VIPs. The officials there sent her to a second platform and the exact same thing happened happened again. This back and forth went for ages. That was probably like three sets long. At one point, an official let another disabled patron up on the platform that Jane had just been denied access to. They just kept saying to me, no, she's in a wheelchair. She's in a wheelchair. And like, I wasn't about to explain to a security guard how different disabilities manifest. Eventually, Jane was able to speak to a supervisor who led her up onto the platform. It was just very clear that there was a lack of communication between all of the volunteers or the staff and security hired. In a statement, Laneway said...
4: This was an unfortunate incident that occurred via an external party who misunderstood the platform's briefing instructions.
3: And they've promised to do better next time.
4: Moving forward, we'll be looking to position a dedicated, trained liaison at each platform.
3: I definitely want to try again, but that assurance that it's a welcoming place for me is definitely not there. Maddie says music festivals should be accessible to
2: everyone. It just made me feel like disabled and chronically ill people... not really welcome
1: and that's such an awful feeling hack on triple j shalala medora with that story and heinous statement to hack laneways promise to do better they said their venue change in sydney actually means they're more accessible but they're going to keep taking steps to prioritize accessible and inclusive spaces and they want to make sure that laneway is enjoyable for everyone We got some messages coming through. Someone says for such a massive festival, it should be obvious from statistics alone that two spots on a platform is not going to cut it. Another person, Andrew in Melbourne, says my sister had problems at the St Kilda Festival on Sunday. Some stalls were on paths, but the wheelchair ramps were blocked, and the main stage that allowed some people in wheelchairs to see uh, meant that some people still couldn't see over the crowd, so there were some issues there. Look, I want to get into this a bit more. Zach Alcott is with get skilled access he consults with businesses and events to make them more accessible and inclusive also he's got a pretty famous brother that you may have heard of hey zach thanks for coming on hack g'day dave how you doing thanks for having me yeah thank you so much for being here look we've just heard about issues that people have had at one festival and some people with other events around the country i reckon you probably hear similar stories how front of mind is accessibility at live events these days
4: it's getting better uh, let's 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 start where it is. Um, there is probably a chat more around accessibility. I think uh, events are probably and festivals are probably thinking it from a built environment perspective. Um, when we talk about access, it's good to remember both the hardware and software of access. Hardware is ramps, rails. Software is people, culture, hearts, minds, and and communication. Um, so people are, are, are getting their head around more the act, uh, the, the hardware, the ramps, and the viewing platforms but as we heard in that story, it's probably more the application, how people with disability and accessibility needs are being treated when trying to utilise those platforms and features that festivals are actually invested in.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that some of the issues here are with communication, that you know the strategies that are in place seem like really good ideas, like they're going to work, but it's communicating that to staff, which might be an issue. Yeah, you're spot
4: on. And events
1: and festivals are actually quite dynamic. If we think about
4: the ecosystem of them. There's so many third parties. So um, the the showrunners, the show, the people that are putting on the show themselves, can put you know some really great plans in place. But then you've got a brief security guards. You've got volunteers. Um, when we think about security and volleys, it's it's pretty transient. So it could be someone whose first day it is, or it could be someone who has worked a million events and always been told it's two people on the platform at the to- at once, or it's a person in a wheelchair and their carer and that's it. And it's pretty outdated ways of thinking. So we need to change um, uh, the culture in and around, you know, how do we brief staff? How do we build up people's soft skills, empathy, and to an extent, sometimes a bit of common
1: sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's go to a caller now. Adam is with us. Adam, you're a disability support worker and you're saying that uh, it's even hard before you get to the events, like just when you're booking the tickets. Uh, what's been your experience?
5: Yeah, um, yeah. I'm a support worker. I've got a range of
1: clients and sometimes
5: just even trying to get through with some of the vendors to be a support worker to take some of my clients along. It can take up to a week for them to get back to you and clients can they just see the good seats getting chewed away and... it's really disheartening sometimes.
1: So does that mean that a lot of your clients are missing out on going to events? Like, how do you negotiate that if you're trying to get tickets, but you don't know how accessible a venue is or what plans are in place? How do you go about dealing with that?
5: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, trying to emotionally regulate a lot of the clients if they're dealing with anxiety. and They're so passionate about some of these gigs and sports or festivals or music. And they can just start to feel really anxious and they feel terrible and i've a couple of times had to it's been a big gig and they've been so keen on
1: it and i've just had to buy my own ticket out of my own pocket just so we can go yeah um Um, look we appreciate you calling in uh you know giving us a bit of a rundown about what it's like adam thanks so much zach alcott is that something you're hearing a lot access to information is a big issue as well before people even get to the events
4: yeah, well I think Adam is a perfect example, but also uh in that story, um the, the, the two people um spoke about how much pre-planning was done before going to the show and that's really common um for people with disability and accessibility needs. Um, you know, I'm I don't have a disability. I, I sometimes I'm a bit poor on admin. I just get a ticket, lob up to the gate and walk in and away I go. Um a lot of people with disability don't have um that that option, and because of that, and this is a great um, piece for any event, you know, sporting, music, the arts. Put as much information as you can up on your websites. Now, that could be from an accessibility standpoint; it could be just from a general um, communication standpoint. So, people like Adam, um, the the people that he works with, can do all the research uh, and make an educated decision, but. When we talk about the information that goes up, a lot of the times organisers are a bit hesitant to put it up because let's say you've got an event, right, and six out of the ten things are accessible. They won't talk about the six, because they're worried about the four things that aren't accessible. Right. Talk about all 10 things and let patrons make a decision to either buy that ticket or get in touch and ask more questions. So we'd rather too much information than not enough and, you know, put it on an accessibility um, page. Um, start an F- If you're a venue, start an
1: FAQs uh page when it talks about access and inclusion it's good advice Zach Ability Fest is coming up next month and I mean that event alone proves just how accessible you can make big live events right there were probably people when you first started that that were saying how's this going to work are people surprised by what they see at something like Ability Fest
4: yeah um, they're surprised I guess twofold Um, one what we do but two that it's normal It doesn't seem like it's uh, like we've built something that, looks like a hospital because it's so accessible like there's still the vibe for a bit of context um, Ability Fest is um, a music festival that we hold on here in Melbourne um, so you know Dave gave away the ghost of it my little brother's Dylan Alcott um, <laughs> we've got a foundation together called the Dylan Alcott Foundation and every year we um, for the last I think five years now um, we have well, we try to put on the most accessible and inclusive music festival um, we've done it the first three years we held it on purpose purpose at a dilapidated velodrome, which we made accessible. Um, and now we're touring it. We did it at Alexandra Gardens down here in Melbourne. And um, this year we're doing it at Birong Ma, which has its accessibility challenges, but we picked it on purpose so we can show the industry that you can make things accessible. It's cool. And also, people with disability and accessibility needs and their mates come. So it also makes good business sense. Um, you know, when we talk about our viewing platforms, you know, there's, they're chockers with both, you know, people um, uh, with both physical, non-physical disabilities, but most importantly, you know, their mates and they're dancing, having a good time, just like, you know, everyone else that you'd expect to when uh, when we go to shows. Yeah, for
1: sure. Look, you know, it's, it's so interesting, especially because, you know, society, there are big changes and there's definitely more expectation these days that events are going to be up to scratch. Zach Olcott from Get Skilled Access, thank you very much for breaking all that down. And hey, just quickly, what's Dylan Alcott like as a little brother?
4: Oh, finally, I've uh, got the platform to expose him. Uh, and I'll tell you about the real Dylan Orcott. No, he's my best mate. He's, you know, as authentic, you know, uh, on the microphone as he is when you're sitting on the couch watching the cricket. Oh, he's, a, he's a very good man. That and was a if, heartfelt
1: moment. I was giving yeah. you an opportunity to sledge him, yeah. but nah, well, that's all well,
4: good. If, if you ever tell him I said that, you know, you're in trouble.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Zach, thanks so much for your time, mate. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Thank
0: you. I look after everyone else's children and I can't afford to have my
1: own. On Triple J. You know, we were only just diving deep on the rental crisis this week, hearing loud and clear how so many of you are struggling to make ends meet. It's a problem for people in all areas who've spoken in the past about teachers, nurses. One industry that employs a lot of young people is childcare. You're about to meet Sarah. She's been in early childcare for years. She's qualified, experienced, but she's finding herself collecting cans for cash because she's struggling on the minimum wage. And she's not the only one in the childcare industry that's fed up. If this is you, I want to hear from you. Have you ditched your job in childcare? Why? 0439757555. First though, Shannon Schubert has more.
0: I have to count every cent in my budget in order to pay my bills.
6: Sarah Marsh works in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales as an early childhood educator. The 27 year old has done the job for 10 years, but despite having a qualification and the hex debt to go with it, Sarah gets paid the minimum wage. I have to
0: subsidise my income with returning on cans in order to pay my bills, and it's hard. I shouldn't have to sacrifice. My career um, in order to live. She's also adopted some unconventional ways to save money. I've purchased a reusable coffee pod, and from that, I've gotten uh, coffee beans that I ground and I fill them up. It's cheaper to use coffee beans than it is to continuously buy coffee pods and takeaway coffees.
6: Sarah is one of many early childhood educators who are crying out for a pay rise. But until they get that, many people are leaving the sector, some choosing higher-paying jobs that don't need a qualification. I've thought quite a few times about leaving and I think, why should
0: I leave an industry that I love? There are other industries that are unqualified for and earn more than what I do, like factory work, like barista work, like hospitality.
6: But Sarah says leaving the industry won't fix the problem. If you want to resolve the issues, you need to pay us what we're worth. Research shows that in the city, about 35% of early childhood educators leave after just 12 months in remote locations. That number jumps to 50%. So this turnover in the early childhood sector is very, very high. That's Karen Thorpe. Her research at the University of Queensland shows the more remote the location, the higher the turnover of early childhood staff, and that can have long-term impacts on kids. What we do is we track children right through into secondary school. What we find is the emotional environment is the most important one in predicting right out to age 15 in terms of NAPLAN results, science, maths, their behaviour, their effort. Helen Gibbons is the Executive Director of the United Workers' Union's Early Childhood Branch. The union is calling on the federal government to fund a 25% wage rise to address the crisis. Everybody's costs are
0: going up and early education wages are not
6: going up. Helen says the sector is facing a double-edged sword. Its predominantly young workforce is leaving after the increased work and stress caused by COVID. But they're not attracting new workers.
0: They're burnt out or exhausted or spent or they can't afford to stay in early education. We've got this leaky bucket and we're not filling up our leaky bucket.
6: Since the Labor government formed last year, Helen says there has been some positive signs for the sector, with cheap early education becoming available from July 1st. But she says swifter action is needed. We're really pleased that the federal government is listening. What we need to see now, though, is action, and demand's
0: going to go up on July the 1st when early education gets cheaper.
6: And educators, like Sarah, hope to see a wage increase that eases the crisis facing the industry.
0: It's not just a problem in our sector, it's a, you know, problem in every sector, but I think it's really, really vital in ours.
6: Sarah is the breadwinner in her household, and a wage increase will help her and her partner make ends meet as well as move forward with their lives. I look after everyone else's children and I, you know, can't
0: afford to have my own. With a wage increase, I will be able to live that little bit more financially stable. And that's all I'm asking for.
1: Hack on Triple J. Shannon Schubert reporting there. And hey, we got a statement from Employment and Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke on this. He says it is crucial early childhood educators are properly valued and recognised and says the government understands the importance of getting wages moving, but he says he wouldn't preempt outcomes of any bargaining processes or applications. Got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says childcare, where does the money go? Parents pay heaps, government pays heaps, staff get nothing. Clearly, there's a problem. Kate says, I'm an early childhood educator and can't afford to save for my own home. I'm struggling with credit card debt. I had a colleague who left because she's paid more to look after people's dogs than their children. Pay us what we're worth. Another person, Amber from Sunshine Co. says, I've looked into working in a supermarket packing orders because it pays more than my full-time teaching job after I went to uni for four years to become a teacher. Heaps of messages coming through. Chris in Penrith, worked childcare for years, fully qualified, earned more as a second-year apprentice plant mechanic. Another person, child care's an absolute rot. Everything's privatised. And someone else, Cha- Georgia in Canberra, says it costs us $135 a day for child care. We don't get told where exactly that money goes. But I know that our educators are paid peanuts. However, our centre manager floats in and out and gets around in a nice car. Look, that's, you know, one person's experience there. We've got a lot of people weighing in on this debate. We've got people talking about teaching and, you know, the the wages that teachers are getting. Look, there's so many industries that are affected by this. We know that childcare is one of the big ones, so we're going to keep covering this in the weeks and months ahead. Hack.
4: The idea that I won't be able to remember the life of have
1: experienced or my wife, my kids... Wow. This is probably my biggest fear. On Triple J. You know, Alzheimer's is probably one of the most feared conditions of our time. And that's because there's still so much that we don't know about it. Like, maybe you've heard more about it recently with Chris Hemsworth announcing he has an increased risk of this type of dementia. It's something you obviously normally associate with old people. So it might surprise you to hear that in China... A 19 year old has become the youngest person diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It made me think how common is this? And could we see more of it in the years ahead? It's time to ask an expert. Dr. Paul Yates is a dementia researcher with the University of Melbourne. He's with us now. Dr. Yates, thank you so much for joining us on HACK. Uh, no worries. This case in China, a 19-year-old young guy just forgetting lots of things, struggling with high school, it's really confronting stuff. How rare is it to have someone this young affected by Alzheimer's?
5: Yeah, look, it's incredibly rare to have a case like this, which is why it's made so much news. Um, it's very uncommon for um, Alzheimer's to present with symptoms in someone uh, in their teens and, uh, or 20s. Um, and particularly uncommon for it to be um, in someone who hasn't got a known um, strong mutation. So um, there certainly are forms of Alzheimer's disease that can uh, cause a younger onset of symptoms, Um, and certainly there are nearly 30,000 people living with younger onset dementia in Australia. Um, But these are conditions that are strongly inherited. So this case, wasn't related to one of the known mutations at all which is a bit strange.
1: Right so do you think we need a lot more research into how Alzheimer's does affect young people?
5: Oh, I think that certainly um, uh, it, this case shines a light that we we will benefit from learning more absolutely um, and I think you know, across the board learning more about um, the contributing um, causes and the treatments that that uh, can can assist uh, will certainly will go a long way. Um, but, yeah, this is a very uh, interesting and, and unusual case uh, that, that's, you know, that's got our attention.
1: Do we know if Alzheimer's presents differently in younger people?
5: Um, look, it, it may do, because I think a lot of the time um, people uh, present with cognitive symptoms um, that can be uh, mistaken, I guess, or can, can mimic a lot of uh, other um, mental health problems. So in people with younger onset, um, may present with, I guess, different challenges from people um, with typical or later onset um, Alzheimer's disease, uh, which pr- most commonly is a short-term memory. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and then later on, other parts of memory and thinking starts to become affected.
1: I mean, most people um, wouldn't even think that it's possible, right? So I guess there are concerns that maybe people probably don't think about diagnosis because they don't think it's going to be affecting them.
5: Yeah, and that's something we see with many people who have symptoms at a younger age because it's not something that's on on the typical radar. um, They can take a little bit longer to to get a diagnosis. Um, And I think the other... um, the other thing that's important, of course, is that it, because it is so rare, there are a whole lot of other things that affect memory and thinking, um, particularly in younger people that um, we are and should be looking for. So it's important if anyone's worried about how their memory and thinking is going or their concentration or their mood, then um, to, to get seen a scene by a GP and if need be referred on to someone who specialises in, in memory and thinking concerns, um, because I think the majority of Um, of of people who more present with symptoms at at a younger age um, are unlikely to have Alzheimer's disease, but much more likely to have a mental health condition, a hormone or nutritional condition, which is much, much more likely and also um, much more likely to be um, treatable. What
1: about genetic testing? Like there's a lot of focus on this after Chris Hemsworth revealed his genetic link to Alzheimer's. Is it something that we should be talking more about
5: yeah it certainly raises the, the the profile of, of learning one's genetics and I think uh learning one one's genetic risk is uh, is can be a really um interesting process um we We tend to see that um for, for alzheimer's disease if that's what people are particularly worried about the the forms of alzheimer's disease that are strongly inherited so um if your parent had it then you would definitely will get it That and that um, typically present younger, they are quite uncommon. So there, are perhaps only um, 1% of all people with Alzheimer's disease have a, have a very, very strong genetic link um, It's called dominantly inherited Alzheimer's disease. Um, Chris Hemsworth's um, genetic workup, I think, was referring to another gene which increases the risk of getting Alzheimer's a bit later in life. Um, and if you have two copies, then you're more likely to have it, I guess, in your... 60s and 70s and if you have one copy of the gene you might be more likely to get it in your 70s or 80s. So it does increase the risk but not at the younger age. Um, the one, I guess, well, one important consideration when we're learning about our, our genes is to, to, I guess, to take in, um, a, an informed choice. So learn as much as possible about the implications of finding out before, um, before we make that decision to, to find out one's um, genetic makeup
1: once you learn it you can't unlearn it look it's um you know it's it's good advice and there's probably a lot of people who are thinking really closely about that dementia researcher dr paul yates thank you very much for joining us on hack
5: no problem thank you
1: and we've got a lot of messages coming through. On our previous story about childcare workers, people getting in touch, letting us know their experiences. Someone said, I went from a certificate three admin into becoming a diploma qualified uh, childhood educator and took a $5 an hour pay cut. Someone else says, Parents are paying for early childhood educators to make a decent wage. It's not getting passed on um, by private operators. Another person says, I can't believe how little those who look after our kids earn. I leave my son with these amazing people and they deserve to be happy and safe in their work environment. Another person says, as a teacher, early childhood workers should be included in our ward we'd be stronger together as well.
0: Hack on Triple J.
1: And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.